When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Anne K. Yoder. Anne K. Yoder is the author of the novel The Enhancers, which was selected as a must-read by Wired, Vulture, Nylon, and elsewhere. Her fiction, essays, and criticism have appeared in Fence, Bomb, Tin House, New York Tyrant, and Make, among other publications, and has been recognized in Best American Non-Required Reading. She is the author of two poetry chapbooks and is a member of the Chicago-based publishing and arts collective Meekling Press. She writes, lives, and occasionally dispenses pharmaceuticals in Chicago. Her new book is The Enhancers, which is a polyvocal novel that follows three teenage friends as they encounter the pleasures and alienation that accompany coming of age in a techno-pharmaceutical society. The Enhancers questions who we are when valued most for our ability to process information. With mental augmentation as a baseline, how do we come to know ourselves and what does it take to break free? Welcome, Anne. Thank you. This is so exciting. I... I read this book uh, when it came out. I immediately got it. I was so excited. Um, I tore through it. I told Alex about it back when Alex was on the pod. <laughs> and he was like, you're an idiot. She's coming on. We have her booked. <laughs> <laughs> and I listened to that episode and I was so excited. I was like, oh, Lindsay read the book. <laughs> <laughs> it is such a great book. It is so its own thing. And I can't wait to talk to you about it. I can't wait for people to to hear more about it. But first, you must read to us. Okay, if I must. (laughs) Um, Okay. I don't think it really needs much of an introduction. It's pretty early on in the book, and it's kind of setting setting up the novel. Awesome. Just say that. Okay. When the factory smoke blew up, we could go out. Its two smokestacks stood so tall on the hill. They could be seen from most perspectives. Smoke made little difference now to my staying in or going out, but I loved to see the stacks standing high in the sun like monuments. They were built the year our town Lumina Hills was established. Before then, it had been a nowhere town, out of the way. Back then, the town had been called Between. It had been a town falling into itself, and its history was divided into before and after the factory. At the time, the town had been fading with an aging astrophysics lab, and a series of decrepit schools that had prepared students for decrepit desk jobs they would gradually move through too. So much was different now with the boost that had begun with the factory. Lumina Corp was established in 1981. It was founded at the crest of the hill with the river flanking each side. First came the factory, then came the stream of postdocs and R&D. Some of the most forward thinkers in supplemental chemistry moved to this town, which soon became a center for research and development and archival advances. This is where valedictorian's predecessors were first conceived of and created. Lumina became one of many hubs and spread out like nodules, each with its own specialty. 
Rari specialized in analyzing natural substances and developing biosimilar synthetics. These were called natural products. The labs also produced thousands of new chemical structures each year. They were cataloged and stored for future use, reference, and retrieval in a series of chambers dug deep in the hill. The town itself had developed an obsession with information. With information came dealing and acquisition and storage. This was a good thing, residents said, easy to keep. Information fell through the air invisibly coating our bodies. It flowed through the air like voices. There were true facts and fictional facts and false facts too. And no one disputed which fact belonged in which category. Sometimes information in the air was so dense it accumulated in drifts. I'd seen people wander with vacant stares and suddenly come to. This seemed absurd to me before I started V, but now I stumbled into this too. It felt like entering a storm. Judy called these fits of losing my senses and stumbling about increased turbulence. I could sense a heaviness in the air when it was full. Some of us were more sensitive to its presence. Judy said it was possibly like a sixth sense we hadn't realized we possessed until we were burdened by the excess. How much information could one memory hold? The question was often asked. It was rhetorical, but was wielded to remind us not much on its own. The general theories of cognition suggested that a memory would expand to accommodate the volume of information ingested. Facts were dense and too many would tear through. Remember, as in take three with the morning meal, remedies that. The smoke blew downwind soon enough again. It descended and covered the town in a blanket of chemical sweetness. The days passed candy-coated. All surfaces were lickably sweet. We were told to stay inside, not to lick, not to inhale deeply. But what was deeply? How much unfiltered air was safe to breathe? I was never not reminded of precautions and safety, but all the same, I had no problems breathing. I paid no attention to the warnings. I had nothing to do on the outside anyway. I passed the day in the basement and the one room cleared of my father's crates. The floor was heated concrete with pillows and cushions along the walls. I sat propped on pillows with the table holding three monitors before me, each sending me a different stream. In the morning, I toggled between chimp cams and video clips, lessons and a wide ranging assortment of feeds. When the air cleared a bit, Azzy and Celia came over. Each took a corner of the room. We kept the lights dim, and we ingested V. We each glowed in the light of our screens. We focused on what was before us. Screen glow felt like a heat lamp, like a hug, like a caress into pixelation. We consumed capsules filled with powders. We snorted and injected. We tracked how many hours, how many milligrams, how many half-lives existed in a day of ingesting. And we absorbed instructional clips, dosing vlogs, CCTV streams, restreams, old films, and really anything transferred digitally. Celia followed a bird-watching drone cam and attempted to memorize the chemical properties of the top 200 supplements, but ended up posting pouty selfies and obsessively checking Samson's availability. As he streamed surgical cams, sex cams, and looked for hot booze in the acclimation feeds shared with third years across factory hubs. We wouldn't meet these students until our schooling was complete, and only then if we headed to university. As he bitched that our classmate Maxine was effusive, posting like she was in some state of post-orgasmic bliss. I should have expected this. Maxine was my mother's protege and at times assisted Dr. Billy. I resented that Maxine was taking to V so readily. I turned off two of my screens and watched old silent film clips, black and white outlines of tall city buildings, 
but mostly I like to look at the faces and how much was communicated with a glance. Each twitch of the lip or batting of an eye was a meaningful gesture. My favorite was Joan of Arc's ecstasy, her gaze. The lone tear down her cheek at the stake, it destroyed me. The way she was persecuted, the way she could overthrow armies and make priests quake. I think I'll stop there. How much have you had to read from that? Oh, from the book? Yeah. (laughs) Are you you sick of it? (laughs) You know, I always, I switch around. I I just kind of, like, what am I in the mood for? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, there are, it is polyvocal. So that in some ways makes it a little bit easier because I can read different voices. Yeah. Um, And I mean, it can feel almost like I'm reading from different sections of the book and different voices can just make it feel so different. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. want to hear, I want to hear where that polyvocal voice came. Um, you know, like where, where did you, can you say more about that choice um, and how it, <laughs> how it forms the narrative for you? Yeah. I mean, so uh, the polyvocal part of the book like that's it that was really the essence like in the seed of the beginning of this book Mm. that I worked on for so long so I I started it even though I swore off I was like I'm not going to try to write a novel while I'm in grad school oh wow I ended up starting it um and I I went to SAIC oh Um, me too yeah 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 (laughs) and I was just I had this sense of of the multiple voices and wanting to, and, and of Lumina Hills and of, of, especially of, of Hannah's voice, um, Harold's voice, the Hannah's father came Mm -hmm. in, like, I was not planning on writing him and he just showed up and I was just like, whoa, what is this? Welcome. Yeah. I was like, well, okay, you're in here too. You get the part. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, so I was really interested in, um, in thinking about Lumina Hills and, and the system of, of the town. And I Mm -hmm. think how, how it operated and, and, uh, you know, with this pharmaceutical company that is basically dominating the town and, and everyone works there and all of these fantastical pharmaceuticals and just, and, you know, there's something about, I guess, capturing the texture of a town that it seemed important mm-hmm. to to write multiple voices. And mm-hmm. and I think it's just how the idea came to me too. You know, I was just like, yeah, like I, there are these different voices. I mean, there, um, you know, I was thinking uh, Tommy, Tommy Orange's book, There, There. Mm, I haven't uh, read it. But I read, yes, okay. Yeah. I read that afterwards, but I was just like, oh, this is so, <laughs> like, this is, it's like, wow, this is, I heard him talking uh, in a conversation, I think. Uh, I mean, this was a while ago, so might be misremembering a bit, but uh, just talking, like, he, he was thinking through, like, the different voices and the voices that um, came through the loudest, you know, he developed into the novel. I, I, I don't know, like that, that I encountered after writing this book, mm. but, but I was just like, oh, that, that's interesting. And I think that's, that's true to some extent that the voices that came to me, um, you know, ended up being there, obviously. Um, and, and some of it was the, the like, I feel like it was kind of this process of excavation. Um, Ooh, yeah. Say more about that. 
You know, I because I had this general sense of Lumina Hills and the town and the the pharmaceuticals. I mean, like, so I you could sort of see it broadly. I could see it really broadly, and and, then, and it being kind of a a snapshot of our world, but set set apart in some way. So I am not writing about the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. in the U.S. and and you know, even though these, you know, it's I feel like there is definitely like the the parallels between uh, what's happening now in our contemporary society and you know just I feel uh surprised in some ways and also not but it's of like oh this really you know it's like I said this in the future and it's really also you know reflecting the present and a lot of you mean in terms of like I have an uncomfortable emotion and I want it to be medicated yeah or I mean I I think so I mean I think just I I guess I'm thinking of a few things. I'm thinking of just uh, kind of pharmaceuticals and and the ways, right? The ways that they're used. I mean, and it's it's pharmaceutical companies having so much money, mm-hmm. um, and you know, like just healthcare. And I mean, this isn't something. This part hasn't changed dramatically. Healthcare in the U.S. like is just so much like like such a large part of the GDP and like, you know, em- employment. And, you know, I, I worked as a pharmacist. I don't know if you know this, but um, I have training as a pharmacist. Um, I gathered that, was... that from your, <laughs> yeah. from your bio. From my bio. Yeah. I, I, didn't, I thought maybe it meant you were a drug dealer. But yeah. then I was like, oh no, she's probably, she was probably a pharmacist. <laughs> probably a pharmacist. Yeah. Not... <laughs> I mean, it, uh, yeah. I feel like, I, I feel like, pharmacist and bartender or not I mean bartender like has to you know talks to people I've worked in hospitals but I feel like they're not really that different in some, in some ways like that's also what a great point <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah I mean and I think also I guess I'm also thinking like just as this morning as I was thinking about you know our conversation I was just thinking about how like the past few weeks the like media has been so dominated by chat GPT and mm. AI and like, are we going to have jobs in the future? You know, right. like, are we like, are, will people write, you know, their own sentences or like just ask chat GPT, um, you know, to write a novel. And I know, you know, like so, uh, my, my neighbor had posted on Twitter, a picture of an ad on CTA that was about AI and like and writing you know like creativity writing and like let AI like help you like 10 times <laughs> was, oh gosh it's like really wow that's yeah so I think that that part about um I think most recently the part about you know they're not being jobs and about you know finding ways to to manage information, you know, being kind of like the jobs of the future. And I just don't know. I think AI and like all of this conversation has just sent me into this dystopia of like, oh, like, okay. So like, this is the world of the enhancers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But which, yeah, I mean, and, and I guess that's, that's a long way from talking about like the foundations of the book being polyvocal, but um you know, I think the the polyvocal part, I just want to come back to that. I, I also envision this being a poet's novel. Um, <gasps> oh, 
when I first started writing it. And then I just realized that as I continue to write it, that I'm a little, that it, it wasn't, it was, you know, it was more expansive or I don't even want to like put a poet's novel in a niche. I think that that's, I love, I love a poet's novel um, mm -hmm. and just, you know, like language and ideas and these characters and kind of just, I feel like poet's novel, like calling something a poet's novel just gives you free reign, you know, to, and, and to not have to adhere to any narrative demands. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then I, I found that I was, I just had written too much narrative into it on too much. <laughs> I like, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, but I, but I want to write a novelly novel too, a novelly <laughs> one with like some plot and so. It's yeah. yeah I I think um you accidentally wrote a really big plot. <laughs> yeah, <I> Oops. <laughs> Who knew? It's fun to put your characters in in situations that they don't know how to get out of. It's really right. Fun. <laughs> I know. And annoying. It's can be so annoying but um really fun for the reader yeah well <laughs> that's good <laughs> yeah. you know I was listening to a, a podcast this week where a clinical psychologist was talking about um the rise in teen mental health uh crisis oh, um, yeah. and she was saying you know when we think of mental health we think of I think it's it's becoming more um uh, in vogue to think that you're that you're always happy if you're mentally healthy or you're or you're just like very neutral and stable the whole time but she said actually mental health is having appropriate reactions to certain situations so if you're experiencing stress then you might feel anxiety if you're you know experiencing something you know that you've lost you're you're having you know grief and you're working through that and um but there's such an easy not easy but there are methods at hand you know, and she was referring to pharmaceuticals where we can mm -hmm. tamp all of that down and we can strive toward this always happy demeanor. Um, and she said, but that's, that's actually a mental unhealth or whatever <laughs> you would call and right. mental illness is if you are reacting to everything with the same baseline yeah. reaction. Um, and I was thinking of this book, of course, cause I knew we were going to have this talk and, and mm -hmm. I was thinking about how, I felt as I read it, the book felt like it had been drugged, you know, um, in its early parts, okay. like I, I drifted through it, sort of held in its thrall, um, like powerless the way that I would have maybe if I was heavily drugged the way that these characters are, mm -hmm. you know, I want to know, like, how did you achieve that? <laughs> Many revisions. <laughs> ah, no, but I mean, I think, huh. That's, that's so interesting. I mean, and I, I think that I really did want the, that to come through, like the characters kind of the Hannah and Azzy, um and Celia, you know, like their, their sense of kind of not knowing themselves mm -hmm. and, you know, just turning two drugs or two supplements, you know, as a way to mediate their emotions, mm -hmm. um, because that's really something that is taught within 
I mean, and, and is, is a way I think of also managing like all of kind of the dystopian things, you mm-hmm. know, that they're dealing with. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think that at one point, or, I mean, you know, I, I did revise the book many times and I feel like it's really hard to write alienation, um, mm-hmm. and to have a reader invested in it is what I found out. So, um, if, if you were drifting through reading it and, you know, like felt, felt yourself in a thrall, like that is like the biggest compliment because, uh, because yeah, I mean, I, I was trying to write a certain amount of alienation and, and a certain sense of just floating through and, you know, kind of, I mean, somewhat, I feel that, I mean, and maybe this reflects my own like teenage life uh more than you know specifically but just a a certain floating through and and not and you know wanting to have control um but not really being in control of your life yet or like the big decisions and Mm -hmm. you know and I I, um you know it's it's a way that that they get through um in this society that they're placed in um you know, I, I think it is like, I do think in Lumina Hills, like the clinical psychologist you were talking about, like there, like, it really is a place where you aren't supposed to feel upset. Like it is, it is threatening, you know, and it is just like, well, how do we manage that instead of like, okay, feel your feelings. It's like, okay. right. Right. And, and you see it with Judy too. And I think that's one of the points the clinical psychologist was making is that it's, it hurts as a parent to see your child in pain. Yeah. And, and so you think, well, we can take care of that. It hurts and it's hard to deal with, right? Because sometimes yeah. you just have to ride it out and it lasts yeah. a long time. You know, I have a, a child who's entering puberty and, um, you know, it's it's work to watch what's happening and realize like actually what's going on is exactly what's supposed to be happening in your body right now, even though right. it's painful, yeah. you know, and and sort of not be afraid in that moment and not think like, we got to do something about this right now. <laughs> Let's go, you know, like you need whatever. And I, and, yeah. and absolutely there are children who need those interventions oh, sure. and yeah. teens and adults. And, and absolutely that is, I'm not talking about those people right. I'm talking about just in general life being painful and right. yeah. sort of allowing your child to feel pain. And I, I really loved the Judy parts because it's very relatable. I mean, she's, she's extreme, but like, it's, yeah. it's, you know, like, I can see how your life will be easier if you just take these pills right? and my life will be easier. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, it's, it's, we're advanced and and the advancements that we've made as a society and in the Lumina Hills society have allowed for wonderful things to happen. But then, then again, there's this flip side to it, right? Um, Yeah. I mean, well, and it's really, you know, it's like, there's so much going on. Like there's, you know, like just in this they're they're further ahead you know in climate change and mm-hmm. extinction and you know there there is there are so many things to mourn in some ways you know mm-hmm. it's just like what do you do you know it's and and yeah I mean I I feel like Judy has found her way through and yes. it's kind of by being I mean she is together but it's by controlling everything around her and she's really invested in kind of the vision of Lumina Hills. She's so invested in it that she can't really separate from that. 
um right because she'd have to face she'd have to face some things that would destroy her probably right (laughs) right but I mean she's also really successful (laughs) yeah right right all signs are pointing to she's on the right track (laughs) yeah so it strikes me now that you were dealing with three major situations in this polyvocal narrative in that in general growing up is really hard being a kid is really hard being a teenager is hard yeah also the world is not healthy the world is (laughs) and we are burying you under um under these these supplements right like we are so you don't have to you don't have to deal with all that noise um but they want to deal with it right like that's one of the major turning points in the book is is hannah definitely wants to to figure out a way to deal with it right 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 yeah i mean i think yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it, of, that Hannah wants to deal with it. And they realize, I mean, I think Hannah realizes, I mean, you know, it's just like you grow up watching your parents and you like can see all of their mistakes mm-hmm. <laughs> so much right. more clearly. And she realizes, you know, like this, that, you know, like what, what she's being asked to suppress and, and that she, you know, it it is this sense, it is this existential like question of who who are you that I think teenagers really go through. But I mean, I think there is just you know the sense of like, who am I if I take this? I don't feel like myself. But if I'm, you know, like what is a self? Um, and myself is really messy. <laughs> and myself know? is messy, and maybe yeah. that's okay, you know, right. or or maybe it's it's because of the. Maybe there are so many things happening. Yeah. Also contribute to this messiness and let's acknowledge that. Um, Yeah. I mean, because this wasn't, yeah. I mean, and I think it's interesting, you know, like this idea of supplements and it's like, yeah, like, you know, they can be, they can be a tool. It's like any, I feel like any technology or, you know, it's just like, it can be a tool, but it can also be used against you. And when it's like, uh, you know, when it's something that, is like the they're dependent on like that the economy is dependent upon then and it's easy you know like there's it's just the movement towards using that is so much you know it's just like there's just so much of an emphasis on the pharmaceuticals rather than like hey like let's let's look at the messiness (laughs) right right It, it reminds me of the ease with which screens became dominant in our lives we didn't even really notice it until now right like like yeah. all of a sudden it's like, oh, maybe we shouldn't <laughs> like, <laughs> like maybe, maybe my kid shouldn't be on YouTube all day, you know, like, <laughs> oh shit. You know, like it just, it was so available and so easy right. and it made so many other things, so many other positives, you right. know, like information and et cetera. Right. And now there's kind of a like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> right. Well, and then there's a the pandemic. I mean, you know, right. like, oh my gosh. Our, you know, which is another thing of like, wh- how do you deal with that? Like, there's no like perfect way of dealing with that because, you know, it's, it, I can't imagine having been a child, you know, through the pandemic and having been schooled, you know, mm-hmm. just sitting at your, I know just my sitting, little first grader. Yeah. And, and then most oh. of second grade, just sitting, staring at his computer. I mean, we, well, we could, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's <laughs> all. Uh, things are better in that way. <laughs> but, but yeah, but then like, it's like, well, how did these things start? It's, you know, it's just like, well, you know, like right. 
or reasons. And also it's there. I mean, I remember there was a point it was like, I was what in grad school 10 years ago, I didn't get my first, I like, I had a cell phone, but I didn't have like an iPhone smartphone until after grad school. And I was just like, I, like for the longest time, I was like, I'm not going to get one. And then I got one. I'm like, I can't live without it. Isn't that insane? <laughs> I remember, I vividly remember getting my first iPhone and I was so pumped that I could finally be on Instagram. Cause I had like, <laughs> you know, a variety of other phones that like Instagram didn't work great on, you know, um, yeah. like you could download it, but it would be really janky. Um, <laughs> and that I never looked back, you know, and that was over a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah, like same here. I know I I didn't know Chicago streets very well. And my partner had a car and I was driving. I was like, oh my God, I need GPS. (laughs) Like this is a lifesaver. Like I will never get lost in Chicago. And now I use it just because of traffic. Like I know where I'm going, but I'm like, well, I want to know if I'm going to be stuck in traffic, you know, like I can't live without (laughs) it. Right. And, And so it's like, well, you know, like there's a lot like that we get out of iPhones and like that we just like accommodated yeah I mean it totally but it is like one of those things that but then you also are like oh but like I'm never not on it right <laughs> I'm like oh shit. I just yeah. got a notification today and I'm so proud of myself that my screen time my daily screen time last week was only three hours a day oh my god that's great <laughs> is it okay because I have no well, I I don't know and so because like usually it's in the, me, in the fours like, what yeah the is, but yeah Okay, good. That makes me feel, <laughs> I guess, even more proud. But you know, because like I've it's been in the fours, and like right after my babies were born, you're just like stuck in a chair holding a baby, and oh but God, it's man. real easy to hold that phone too while you're sitting there, you know. And sure. God, I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, sometimes like my phone is like you've been on the phone like. 20 hours a day and I'm just like I don't really know where you're getting this information but this is not correct you're like listen <laughs> some of this is GPS okay and that's fine right but I'm like I am sleeping during part of this yeah <laughs> you know? so oh you know it's sneaky because like if you don't close your tabs on your phone some of those websites just keep uh, running okay. and, and that must be it that's gotta be that's what it is and <laughs> okay you are not no. on your phone <laughs> Yeah, I got a notification once that was like, you average 16 hours a day. And I was like, wait, what? And that was because <laughs> some wacky website that my kid looked up was oh. just running, running, running. <laughs> well, I want to rewind just a little bit and okay. ask you, where did this idea come come from? I mean, you said you were like, I'm not writing a, a novel in grad school. Oh, yeah. And then it just forced you. And then it forced me. Yeah, I mean, I just had this kind of it felt like a sweeping idea I mean obviously it it there was a lot there because I spent a lot of time going deeper with it I so at the time that I started the book um it was my second semester of grad school I was yeah so like that second year I was uh working with Eduardo Katz and I TA'd his class on art and biotechnology um, and so was thinking a lot about, uh, kind of cyborgs and supplements and, you know, enhancements and post-humanism. Um, I was reading, and I was also in this class, um, an art history class that was mainly focused on like art after 1960 and, a video and we were reading Bergson and William James who I love anyway and wait Anne you were getting your MFA in writing Mm -hmm. 
So I want to explain that to people that don't understand. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah that's probably good. Let's uh, just real quick, a little aside, yeah. the school of the art Institute of Chicago, where Anne and I both got MFAs in writing. Um, it's when I applied, they didn't care about your GRE score and they didn't care what kind of writer you were, which was really unique at the time when I applied at least, because you had to say at all the other schools, I'm a poet or right, I'm a yeah. fiction. You which, don't have to declare genre, which is right. Nice. And I feel like most writers are, are, they write a lot of different things. And so that mm-hmm. was really groundbreaking for me. And I don't test well, all my test scores are terrible. Um, and so, you know, they just want to see what you're, if you're up to something, which is my favorite Alex Higley mm-hmm. phrase. Um, <laughs> and uh, when you're there, they really encourage you to take classes in all the other art departments because mm-hmm. they firmly believe that that informs your writing. Um, and so back to what Anne was saying, she was taking art history classes, not because she was an art history major, but because right. at the art Institute, you're supposed to, um, yeah. you know, and you can, much of it. and you <laughs> but, can, yes. And, the, and they let you in wherever you want at the, at the museum. And it's, it's incredible. So that's just our little ad for the art Institute <laughs> I know. Back yeah. to what you were saying. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I was getting so much from that and yeah, like the readings, um, yeah. Reading like Henri Bergson, just on the nature of like memory. I don't know. Like, it may be like a bit like too heady in some ways, but like all of this fed into this idea of, of these teenagers, you know, and, and to Hannah, the who you know despite it being polyvocal i feel like hannah is the the through line yeah. of the book and mm-hmm. you know thinking um you know i guess thinking about conceptions of self and you know ways of of being um and and thinking about uh supplements as a way of you know of of altering being but and becoming Mm -hmm. too um and and so that was really the generative seed I mean and also I don't know I reading Lispector and I was just like I want to write Passion According to GH Mm -hmm. (laughs) such a great I love that book so much um uh yeah so I I think you know there was there was so much that was kind of um that I was thinking about and I, and maybe needed, wanted a way to process. I think also, so when I went to grad school, I was not working in pharmacy at all. And it was, had, I was like, I'm never going to work as a pharmacist again. Wow. <laughs> uh, I didn't stick to that because I had some loans to pay off. Uh-huh. That's the thing about yeah. the institute. <laughs> but, but I took, I took a few years off and, and it was really the place where, you know, looking at kind of, it's like, I have this whole like archive of awareness and experience and like, what, what's an interesting way of kind of incorporating that, you know, how can I write about that in a way that's interesting to me? Um, You know, was also, was also part of it because I had really until that point, just not, I hadn't wanted to write about that aspect of my life at all because it was my work life. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you think that, um, not to interrupt you, but I am no, interrupting no, you. No, um, do you think there's a similar, um, like fruitful tension that like studying other art forms did for you that that kind of work experience provides your writing? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, thinking about it now, like, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a, an element of, 
you know, my life that I feel most people don't have access to, nor do they necessarily want it. You know, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. People would, you know, said like, oh, like, I'm so fascinated, write about pharmacy. I'm like, it's really not that interesting. <laughs> you know, like the workplace novel or, you know, I, mm-hmm. I haven't read David Foster Wallace's Pale King, but, you know, it's about the IRS, you know, and like kind of the tedium of that. And, and there's, you know, there's a lot, you know, I feel like if you look at life, I mean, it's, yeah, if you look at life close enough, you can see everything, you know, within those details. So it isn't, so I, I think, I think so. I mean, I think with this book, I think at the Art Institute, I think it, I mean, I think with art, it's easier to feel excited and like kind of passionate than, you know, with, for me for what me what do for, you mean Anne? come on then with about drugs no but also like people do feel like there's um shoot I'm not gonna remember his name uh but he wrote a book he is a chemist who was based like outside of Berkeley um and wrote a book on the nature of drugs and he I have to look this up um because I don't and he was like one of the people who really brought in like psychedelics to oh, okay. the larger sphere. Um, I don't remember his name either, but I know who you're talking about. He's like in the in the 60s and 70s, right? And the, yeah, Alexander Shulgin. Um, and he taught at Berkeley, has a book on the nature of drugs. He and his wife, like his wife was a therapist. And he would just, they he was like old school temp chemist and would test all of his compounds um and his wife would and he would have these big dinner parties and it you know like and he was very passionate about chemistry and drugs so you know and and I'm fascinated by that but it's definitely I'm like well that is not me (laughs) (laughs) like good for you dude (laughs) right so I'm like I guess not meant to be yeah a chemist but pharmacologist but uh yeah I mean I think you know there was something about I mean I I do have to say like with writing for me the idea of treating it like an art form and treating it as something that's process-based rather than um I mean like in in grad school and thinking of it that way was really transformational for me Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about when I right out of grad school, I got a job working in Um, Mm e-learning. And so I was writing a bunch of stuff for clients that were pharmaceutical companies and um, dying inside. (laughs) But I was so prolific. I was writing all the time. Like sometimes ideas would fly into me at work and I would have to write them down. You know, I'd have to write the thing at work. And I, I, I've often thought of like, what was that? You know, like, yeah, it was, I was, I felt as inspired, not by the subject matter, but just by something in the air or like the tension, right. I guess, as right. I had when I was at the art Institute and wow. studying with all these amazing, you know, practitioners yeah. of art. That's fascinating. I mean, I think, you know, it's like maybe, I mean, on some level boredom and it's gotta be distance. boredom, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like a distance of not feeling totally, enthralled with it you know and feeling that space and but also having you know something different there yeah like but yeah I think boredom (laughs) can really be 
great for creative practice. You know, I feel like having a little bit of boredom, like our agitation. You know, yeah, like, agitation like is a, the perfect word. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I was going to say horny rage. But <laughs> horny agitation rage sounds a lot sexier. <laughs> I think I will take that. Okay. <laughs> agitation is the exact word. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you read a lot of dystopian novels? Do you like the form? You know, that's a fun. Um, I really don't. Isn't that <laughs> funny how that happens? Yeah. yeah, it is. I was like, it's science fiction because I have a background in science. Yes, there you go. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's right. part of it. I, you know, I do. I've read, you know, some dystopian books you know I've read like Station Eleven mm-hmm. which is not sci-fi I've read Neuromancer you know it's like I've read like a lot of go-to's but no it's not I'm definitely more of like a literary like drama you know I get enthralled within like drama psychological fiction definitely more so um than kind of like all of the possibilities of like some you know type of fantastical world or um or yeah like the sci-fi I mean I think I I like it like as an element I totally engage that and you know I think that that is a challenge for this book too because it doesn't really or I mean you know I can't look I can't look at it objectively but you know it's like I know that probably you know where I'm writing from is not you know like in line with like sci-fi in general, you know, there, I, I think there was a criticism, the book and like, actually in like a sci-fi publication, Strange Horizons. And like the reviewer was talking about how the book didn't really, it had multiple modes. Like it wasn't really conforming to one, um, one form of novel. And I was like, well, yeah, like that's kind of true. But also, I think I think I wanted to have these different elements and and wanted it ideally to work. You know, it's like obviously, you know, a reader has their own preferences, and you know, I I totally, I, I mean, I was just like, okay, that's an interesting criticism because I can see that it, it's true, but also. I think I wanted that to happen. (laughs) Well, absolutely. It seems so weird to be mad at someone for that. Like, I guess that when you're working in genre, which I don't think you were working in genre, even though there is that here, like there's this form, this formula that they are expecting. And if you go, if you stray from that in any way, if the language is too beautiful, (laughs) then they get really mad and, and it becomes a, 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 an entryway for criticism. But to me, that's, like, why wouldn't you want your book to be able to be, I saw someone else said this yeah. recently to be shelved in three different spots in the bookstore, you know, yeah. um, you know, like it, to me, that's like, uh, like that's the way it should be. Yeah, totally. I mean, and, and I think, you know, it is also this idea of like maybe writing between genres or not. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, I think it was, it's definitely something you know, like the book starting as a poet's novel and like having, having, you know, some pharmaceutical language in there that, you know, still, and I think some of the organization, you know, still derives from that. Um, But, but, you know, liking that, if I see it in somebody else's book, right. I'm just like, yeah, that's like, I love that. I love love kind of breaking open genres or, you know, like not like, yeah. I mean, you know, I think, 
yeah like what what is the reason to to i mean there there are definite reasons to like stay within one genre and i think it's easier to market and to sell but (laughs) probably i mean but also for now for now right for now i mean but but yeah i mean just in terms of writing and um and and as a reader i mean i guess i i was also hoping to to write the type of book that i would want to encounter as a reader Mm -hmm. um but you know, it's like after spending so much time with a book, I it's like I I can never see it as I like as a reader would. <laughs> you know? right. like, yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, but I think like I'm, I'm just thinking about how I um, try to ob- objectively see something, and the way that yeah. I do it is kind of what you're touching on is like, would I be excited to read this? Because that's all I can control. Yeah, and sometimes the answer is no. <laughs> i gotta deal with it then right and to that end i want to hear a little bit about you know you've mentioned a few times how long the revision process was and how many times you revised i want to know like what that looked like for you do you have readers are you getting feedback or are you is it sort of a solitary affair um you know i i had a lot of readers i mean especially because i was um in school at the beginning. So I had way too many readers. Mm-hmm. A novel. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and readers, uh, you know, I feel like the readers, I mean, I have uh, friends who, who read it multiple times. Um, I think, see, I finished a full draft. Like t- what I thought would be maybe close to finished in 2015. And then mm. I was revising it like I, I, I found that I, uh, had, so I had written like the first half or three quarters in grad school. And then I was kind of finding my bearings after grad school, took a little time and then finished it. And I found like what, like the part that I had written after grad school was like, they just, there was a difference in style, I think, just because mm. of time. Mm. And so I spent a lot of time, like, it was like, okay, now I'm rewriting the beginning. And so I kept rewriting. I felt like it could be kind of like this um, performance project. <laughs> it was like, you know, what? Oh. Like, I could actually, I mean, it's like, I'm not invested in doing this, but I do feel like it's a durational project that I could keep writing this book and like, marking the book at different points and then you know like at the end of my life I would have many versions of a book and it would be entirely different you know and just this thing it was just like this exploration and revision and kind of um you know genius yeah that's straight up SAIC right there that is genius (laughs) because it was it kept and I was just like wow like this like I am writing a different book each time but you know it's it's also you know like trying to get the the parts to come together um and you know and i think it was you know it was just like learning the process and how to feel comfortable with it i mean mm-hmm. i feel far more adamant that i don't want that much input early on now mm-hmm. um but you know i i had sent i had sent the book out to agents and i had like really warm declines you know and I was like well this is good but not not what I'm hoping for right and uh you know and then to small presses and then there was a certain point you know like I had revised it and like in like 20 
maybe it was 2020. So 2020 just sucked anyway. And like, I had some small press, uh, uh, rejection notes and I was just like man like maybe I should just give up on this <laughs> you know like oh, I've God. been working on this so long and I just want to finish it but also like I don't want to waste you know it's like I don't want to get to a certain point and be like well okay that's that's that you know because mm-hmm. like it just felt so bad at that point I mm-hmm. mean which I mean obviously rejection does but it was just like oh well maybe it was a total waste of my time and maybe I need to write something else or put it in a drawer and just give up and then um I actually at that point you know one one person who hadn't read it uh was my friend Amanda Goldblatt Chicago. oh my god shout out Amanda an incredible Amanda writer is, uh, yeah, Amanda's great. I mean, yeah, I just I love her work and just the way she thinks about writing and aesthetics. And she hadn't read it. And she was and she was just like, do you want me to read it? You know, and I was like, I knew that Amanda would tell me straight up like what she thought. So I was like, sure. You know, because so like if you see something, you know, that I can do with it. I am open to it, but otherwise like I'm going to burn it. And, (laughs) and yeah. And, and, you know, having that conversation with her, like she did read it and was encouraging and had some ideas. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to take these revisions and go with it. Um, And yeah, like, and then I did that. uh, And uh, because of my work with Meek Lane Press, I was able to, and they were having an open reading period. I was just like, you know, like, what if we, what if we do this book? And, you know, they were on board. Uh, Rebecca and John were on board. So, you know, it it was one of those things, just like, you know what, it just, I need to finish it and get it out in the world. So, um, so yeah, I mean, definitely with the, uh, help and support of friends and you know like a press that I've been a part of like it's it's kind of great because I was like I don't know if anybody's going to read this book but you know I'll be done with it and, and it'll be out and it'll be a thing and it will be out and like then I can write the next thing yes, <laughs> so, like, the best yeah and and then it came out and like actually got some press and I was like what the like it did it got I, really good press I mean I was, you know yeah. I I that's why I ran out and got it because so many people that I trust were talking about it. And, um, you know, like my rule is like, if I see it once, okay, fine. I see it. But then if I see it twice, Mm -hmm. then I like, I'm like, let me see if this is available at the library or whatever. And then if I see it more than that, then I just order it. And I own a copy of your book. It's right here with me. So I ordered it. (laughs) Um, and you know, it, it was everywhere and, and, I mean, like, I, I want to talk a little bit about Meekling. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm glad that you brought them up. But before I do that, I just want to say Amanda Goldblatt, who you mentioned, she is in the thank you, the acknowledgments of so many books I love because oh, yeah. she's such an incredible reader. So she read um, Jack Jem's Empty Theater. Mm-hmm. She read Laura Adamchick's Island City. She read this one. Um, and she herself has a novel called Hard Mouth. That is, mm-hmm. if you like dark, like amazing shit (laughs) you should read hard mouth um because it's it's incredible and she's incredible at at a linguistic level too her work is so good you know it's like multiple levels of of the voice in hard mouth is so 
unique. It's not anything I've encountered before. And she maintains it the whole time. And, it's- and it has such a good ending. Like, oh my God, <laughs> such a good ending. Like it, it's, it would be impossible to like even describe it. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously no spoilers, but yeah, it's, it's definitely. If anyone yeah. has seen the Rebecca Hall movie resurrection, that's that's what you're in for oh I haven't seen that I I just watched it last night so it's top of mind (laughs) I'm writing that down (laughs) oh my god it's fucked up anyway um okay so when when the enhancers came to me Mm -hmm. holding it is such a joy it's this little chunk of a book (laughs) and and when you page through it you see um that there's like on the you know there's page level design that makes it feel like a pharmaceutical pamphlet and because there's you know the drugs are described in that pharmaceutical language and font and Mm -hmm. then there's this other voice that's in the pharmaceutical font um and anyway so I just wanted I wanted to hear from you a little bit about what it was like making this book with Meekling you know at the design level at the editing level um and then a little bit more about uh about Meekling in general yeah yeah so um so let's see so actually with editing the book, uh, we got Amanda Goldblatt to come on and be the editor, which was such, like she edited the book. Uh, she's Amazing. an incredible editor, editor uh, and reader. She used to, she edited for Noemi as well oh, wow. uh, before. But um, yeah, because with, so with Meekling, you know, I'm actually a big part of Meekling. Rebecca Elliott, John Wilms, uh, Chelsea Fidiment, Nicholas Davis, uh, you know, we have a few other people who come and go, but like, that's kind of like, it's pretty small endeavor. Um, Rebecca Elliott is the design guru and is really incredible um, with, has like letterpress in the studio, uh, offset press. But uh, like Rebecca and I, like we've worked together for a really long time. We met in grad school and Rebecca and John founded Meekling. And then I kind of came on and I, I do a lot of prose editing um, for like the the fiction and prose uh, publications. And so I was like, well, I am not going to edit this. <laughs> you know, and like So, yeah, I mean, it's really like total small press, like, okay, like, and, you know, Amanda was like, yeah, I'll, I'll edit it for you. And then, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, it was like the beauty of like doing the book this way was, it was exactly what I wanted. I had to make no cuts for anyone. Um, Suzanne Gold did the cover art. um, And Suzanne has a book out with Meekling. Suzanne was also from the art Institute. Um, and Suzanne has done a number of like covers for me clean. Um, and Rebecca and I have worked together. I mean, the, the structure of the book is largely it's like, I really was thinking of a pharmaceutical packet Mm -hmm. or the package insert, um, which was something, yeah. I mean, I had, I think I had first started thinking about like using manuals as like a form to contain a novel reading Dubravka Grezich, who has this sewing pattern uh, <gasps> novel, like, uh, <laughs> yeah, like Steffi uh, something in the jaws of life. And oh it, so it, yeah, I, I love Dubravka Grezich. And so I was just like, yeah, like 
you know, can use like a pharmaceutical package insert. Um, and so, so that was there and the parts were there and like Rebecca did the design and it's just like, Rebecca is great. I, I also think just like having, having worked so closely with them, um, you know, it just, it made it like, I was really happy to be able to bring it out with Meekling and just to have it be the book that I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to work with people, you know, like Suzanne Gold, whose work I really love to, to just, you know, to make it its own thing. So, I mean, yeah, the beauty of, of doing it that way was really just being able to have, uh, control and like collaboration, um, and, and yeah, and, and so with Meekling, I mean, Meekling started what in like 2012, I think like the first, the first books, like <laughs> Rebecca had this like miniature, Rebecca took all of these, uh, took letterpress classes at SAIC. Um, they were also a, a writing major and did more of like the book arts. Uh, Amazing. Yeah. And is a talented artist in their own right and um and is really good with like machines and like uh recently before the pandemic acquired an offset press um and was just like oh i'm just gonna publish the next two meekling art books on this is like my my first project (laughs) it was like like, are you sure (laughs) it took a while but they're gorgeous I mean it actually didn't even take that long it was just the the machine itself doesn't work in in winter uh, when there isn't enough humidity. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> it's such a finicky press. So I it's mean, literally Meekling press. <laughs> <laughs> literally. Yeah. I mean, and, and the perfect bound books, uh, we do via like, generally we've had Mick not in gun print them, but mm. yeah, like the art books are, um, yeah, like we're trying to find ways to to make most of the work in house or to what you know. I don't know if that's even feasible, but to do some of it. Um, and yeah, so I mean, the idea was really just thinking about forms for books. Uh, you know, we started off being mostly like hand hand bound chat books. We did chat book series. I mean, I think just like having different ideas. Um, like we started this series called Meekling Talks in like 2014. And uh, the it was kind of this idea of like, let's have readings that aren't readings per se, you know, that where it like that that doesn't have the same necessary readerly like conventions of a reading. But mm-hmm. um, let's have so we decided to do talks, which is kind of a take on the performance talk or a p- performative talk. But also like the only idea was that or the only stipulation was that some part of the talk must be fictional. So like, we were kind of taking on like the pataphysical essence of like, you know, with pataphysics of like the science, you know, like fictional science. Um, But it was great because, you know, people would come in and do like performance work or do like a performance talk or, you know, just like tell a story or do like a conversation. And um, anyway, and then like out of that, we did, like a spoof on the review. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that like, it's, there's been this, I think one of the things that has like propelled the press is to just find like different ideas to give it energy at the Mm -hmm. intersection of art and literature. And um, then we, we started doing perfect bound books in 2020 
Um, and, and that's been really great. We got distribution through SPD, which made a big difference in just, um, you know, visibility and being able to get the books out because if you don't have an ISBN, <laughs> uh, it'd be hard. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's really been interesting to kind of be, you know, to, to witness Meekling's evolution and to like be a part of it. And, um, yeah, I mean, and it's really, it's exciting to like, just, you know, have, like, I think we really, uh, I mean, it's been great to, to publish the, the books, that have been coming our way. Um, like the the most recent books were that came out this spring. Like one is uh, kind of poets. It's a collaborative novel between Brenda Jima and Janice Lee. And it takes, it's kind of like a philosophical tract that takes on like climate change and um, has a roving eye. Um, so I, I think... I think we like to take chances with the work, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's just like, what's, what's exciting and like what feels relevant and um, what might not get published somewhere else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think if you, any, if any avid, I am a writer, but listeners out there, remember we, we featured Miriam Krolos who wrote Stan that was published right. on Meekling, totally. um, which is an astonishing obsessive <laughs> tract. <laughs> oh my um, God. Yeah. That I think, could be overlooked elsewhere yeah Um, and um, I remember Alex being like bowled over by it and like couldn't believe what he was reading Um, so it's 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 quite awesome to have something like Meekling out there Um, are you do you guys accept submissions we do we do I mean we are going to have an open reading period I think in the fall Um, you know, we will, you know, we'll look at things or, you know, somebody, if people want to get in touch, but I think with the open reading period, we're kind of, we have to regroup and like take care of some businessy things. And then we're going to start reading again for the next round. Awesome. So everybody mark your calendars for fall. Yes. To send to Meekling <laughs> Press. That's right. Please. And, and I just want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about this incredible book that I tore through. Oh, thank you, Lindsay. Was uh, so happy to revisit with you. Yeah, yeah, it's such a pleasure talking to you. Everybody go to Meekling Press, meeklingpress.com and order the enhancers and then order a couple more while you're at it. <laughs> you won't be sorry. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Lindsay.